2: On News Radio six eighty WPTF,
1: and I'm Doug Lewis, certified financial planner,
2: and I'm Deborah Lewis, certified financial planner,
3: and we're here to answer your questions for the next hour.
1: Debbie, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you, Debbie?
4: Hi. Um, yes, my husband and I are actually driving to dinner, and I I am listening to your program, and um, we have a lump sum of money to invest for our daughter. And we wanted to know what the best way to do that is so that she has income over her lifetime.
3: How old's your daughter?
4: My, Our daughter is 35.
3: 35. And what's the amount of, uh, of the lump sum?
4: It's about
1: $100,000. Is this her first investment, or has she done any investing at all?
4: A little bit uh of investing but she's not is,
1: as, she, is she married or single? Tell us a little bit about her situation.
4: She's not married. Um she's uh she has boyfriend and uh they're thinking about getting married but uh not in when well it's not uh current because he has to finish his program studies and um so uh and she has a business of her own and uh we just are Trying to make uh, decisions of uh, where to put about a hundred thousand dollars for her.
1: Well, you're trying. So you want to make a gift to her of a hundred thousand and have it invested in her name.
4: Well, actually, it's her own money.
1: Oh, where'd she get a hundred thousand dollars at age thirty-five?
4: Uh, from her business.
1: Oh, so she so she's ma- she's got a high income.
4: I said, well, yeah, she did, but currently it's not as high as it was before.
1: All right, what she needs to do, first of all, there's no quick answer. The people that give you a quick answer are trying to sell you an investment. Somebody will say, oh, she needs to buy an annuity. Well, that's about the worst thing she could probably do. Or she needs to go ahead and put the money into an index fund. That's another worst thing she could do. There's no one answer. What she needs is proper advice. And, yeah. and, and advice is... What we, the Lewis family, do all day long, year after year in our offices, we need five pieces of information from her for an appointment to meet with her to give her advice. And the five pieces of information we call the five keys.
2: So probably we'd we'd want to look at uh, her tax returns and federal and state, the most recent returns, Then a list of assets and liabilities. That's key, too. So that's whatever she owns and whatever she owes. Like if there's any value to her business, uh, if she owns uh, real estate, any stocks, bonds, mutual funds, any investments, cash accounts, 401ks, IRAs, etc., And then any of her her credit card debt or mortgage. That's
1: all part of of, her liabilities.
2: The third key would be her projected income for this year. Number four, it would be what's being withheld from her uh, for her taxes uh, from her paycheck or quarterly estimates. And then lastly, would be her living expenses.
1: Right, those five keys that Linda mentioned: financial statement, tax return, living expenses. uh, Income. Projected income and taxes paid. Those five keys are what we require or request come come into our office before the meeting.
3: Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000.
1: And then during the meeting, there's an advisory consultation, which she will have with myself or Deborah, but a certified financial planner that will go ahead and look at everything and then make it's much more difficult yeah here's than just what I was going to add yeah, here's, Debbie
3: here's what I was going to add was is she makes an ideal financial planning client because she's young enough to really maximize this hundred thousand while it may not be a repeated annual income of a hundred thousand that she'll have set aside or the ability to set aside oops hold on just one second Okay, and sorry about that. Um, but the, while she may not have repeated a hundred thousand per year, at the same time, this is at age thirty-five an opportunity to have this invested for possibly the next thirty years. If that makes a um, a big dent in what she can accumulate for her retirement savings, this will be huge. But the way this yeah. doesn't get mishandled is proper financial planning with a certified financial planner. So I would say call yeah. me at the office nine one nine. Eight seven two seven thousand.
1: Give her time I, to write that
2: down, Deborah. I will. I'm going to say it again.
4: Uh, I'm driving. Sorry.
2: That's fine. Just remember nine one nine USA seven
4: thousand. Oh, USA seven thousand. I can remember that. Okay. <laughs> the um, the thing is that uh, you said not to invest in an index fund, and I was looking at Vanguard uh, five hundred Index as a possible purchase. For, or
1: some of that money. Yeah. Well, see, y- you have no logic behind. I mean, that's 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 like throwing darts at a ball. At we a need wall. to put some
3: analysis yeah. and then pick. Yeah.
1: You don't a just say, "I investment. think I'll go ahead and buy this." That, that's the way people lose money. Those same people that put that money in that very fund, yeah, in two thousand and eight, lost fifty percent of their money.
4: Whoa.
1: So yeah, from the high to the low, that yeah. was a fifty percent drop. So it's not a matter of what's the right investment; it's a matter of what's the right plan, planning, yeah. and and I think if you if she gets that in her head, and I like Linda's reminder, it's always nine one nine USA seven thousand.
3: I guess the only thing that was I was Debbie. You said I'm what right. I what I was thinking about investing for her. It doesn't sound like she would be the client i mean no, they, if, no
1: no we need her to come in we yeah need, we yeah.
3: i mean it, it's your daughter who would be i think yeah, um, she's the one making the appointment in. yeah i mean y'all could come yeah. with her of course but
4: um, my, my husband is laughing because um she never, we, she in never invested any of her own money
3: yeah and, so uh, she needs to be educated first and foremost on, on just financial planning but, Debbie, right. I would say give me a call, 919-872-7000. Uh, our engineer, I'm um, sure, got your phone number before uh, you came over. Uh, so if, if, um, if you have some time after the show, I'll call you back or leave me a message at the office, and um, we'll, we'll get her started in the right direction.
4: Well, thank you very
2: much. And just get her to write down any specific questions that she has or that you have for her. Okay? Have a wonderful week. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF.
3: If you'd like further information, call us at 919 872 7000 or go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. That's DougAndLinda.com. Cash flow planning isn't only
1: for the young or the old. The 65 years old with $3 million or the 35-year-old with only $100,000? Cash flow planning touches everybody. For the rest of our lives. That's right. What else is new, Deborah, in the world of cash flow planning?
3: Well, you know, I always like to come back to the people who are just beginning. And there was a real interesting article in one of the uh, papers that was talking about the extra 1% of pay saved can really add up. And I think what they wanted us to see was is that, you know, when you're in your 30s, just like this lady's daughter before on the call before, mm-hmm. you have the power of time. One percent can make a big difference because there's this thing called compounding. And a little bit of extra savings today can go a long way tomorrow.
1: All right. Well, let's let's play with some numbers then for a second. Let's take a 25-year-old with a $40,000 salary. Okay. And let's say they just set aside one percent. That's $33 a month. Okay. Okay. So what happens to that over their lifetime if they just do that little $33 a month?
3: Well, that would... What could
1: it grow to be assuming? Okay. Assuming. Uh We have to assume something. All right. Let's not assume like the S&P 500 or what we just talked about. Let's just assume 7%.
3: Okay. Something realistic. All right. And conservative. All right. So um, let's use 42 years because that would be, if, if we're going to use full retirement age, that'd be 67. And if she is 25, mm-hmm. that gives us 42 years. Mm-hmm. If we're doing $33 per month, mm-hmm. that's and we're using 7% annual interest, that's going to be 100000 for 42.
1: Oh, okay. $100,000 is that little... $33 a month, that 1% of a $40,000 salary.
3: Right. It could add up to $100,000.
1: Okay. Now, okay. let's compare. Let's say they didn't do anything and they waited till they were 45 years old, but now they had a $70,000 salary. Now, 1% of that $70,000 salary, which is only going to be $58 a
3: month. All right. All right. And if that's only for twenty-two years, still using seven percent, you're going to only have accumulated thirty-six thousand dollars.
1: Big difference. That's the point you're trying wow. to make: time compounding. Absolutely, the time value of money compounding.
3: That's right. Thirty-three years over forty-two years will get you a hundred thousand using those exa- that example. Uh, Fifty-eight dollars a month over twenty-two years is only going to give you, th- you know, over thirty-six thousand dollars.
1: Well, you know, in our practice, we always say that you should consider as best you can 10 percent maybe 15 percent of your income of your income yes so let's use that and say now let's go okay. back to that
3: 25 year old if right. the 25 year old put ten percent of their salary all right, that's gonna be four thousand right. dollars over 42 years at seven percent interest wow they're gonna they're gonna have they could have 922 thousand
1: almost a million dollars almost a
3: million dollars and
1: that and that ten percent that I wanted yeah that four thousand. That can be split. Maybe the employer puts in half so of that. So true. So let's and say it,
3: they were only putting a setting aside 2000 the employer's matching the other 2000 and in 42 years, they could accumulate almost $922,000. All right.
1: Let's go a little further. Okay. Let's take 50. Like, you know, Susan, was that Was her name, Susan? Debbie. Debbie's daughter, Susan? Uh, no, she didn't oh, say right. Anyway, the
2: lady was Debbie. Right. And she had a daughter, but... This could be any young person.
1: But my point is, single people, single people, generally, they can do more than ten percent. Because that's right, that's right. You
3: can squeeze out fifteen percent. So if I punch in the same numbers, let me use the same numbers, fifteen percent. Um, at if and now if she's making, now should I use six, that would be $6,000. So $6,000 a year at averaging 7% per year, mm-hmm. that person would accumulate $1,383,000. Look
1: at that. $1.3 million. You've
3: just become a middle-class millionaire. You've
1: just become a middle-class millionaire. It can be done. And we have the pleasure so often watching these, the Lewis family has been doing this in our office. We're watching people all the time grow and become these middle-class millionaires.
3: You're listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Call to make an appointment with Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner of Lewis Financial Management. Call 919-872-7000 or visit our website, dougandlinda.com. Lee, this is Doug Lewis with Money Matters. How can I help you this evening?
5: Yes, Doug. I'm looking for just a referral because questions would take too long on the air as to who to talk to about financial planning and retirement.
2: Well, uh, if I'll you... refer you to my wife. <laughs>
5: <laughs> That'd be fun.
2: Well, I'm not exactly a planner myself, but I can send you some information. That'd be fine. Um, when, see, what's I'm, important...
5: I'm a, young, I'm a young professional, 32 years old, and making quite well, especially since I was born poor, but want to invest it and don't want to just spend it and don't know who to go to.
2: Well, Lee, one of the things that's it's important is to work with a certified financial planner like Doug and it's important to look at the credentials and the expertise and then it's also important for you to look at what are your questions and what are your needs but if you'd like to call the office at 872-7000 I'll be happy to um, send you some information
5: 872-7000?
2: Right. Uh, what, what is your situation?
5: I have multiple questions. You know, where do you put money? I'm saving about thirty thousand dollars a year. And uh, I've got about $300,000 worth of real estate. And so
2: what do you do? Okay.
1: Well, you start with a financial plan, Lee. Yes. <laughs> you, 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 you start with the living expenses. Basically, we identify the living expenses and the living expense needs. Then we go from there back to the fu- the future goals. We want to find out the retirement age goal. We want to find – you have children?
5: No, not yet.
1: All right. Then we don't have to to be
5: married. I got engaged this past week. So now I have to get serious.
1: All right. Well, financial planning for single people is even more delicate because of the tax situation. Right. And we do a series of analyses on the taxes, on the cash flow, on the estate, uh, on the retirement. And then we start with the living expenses and we move everything against that one number. Then we do future values and discount back to present values. Then we do an asset allocation model. Determining according to the client's risk tolerance what, what investments should go in what types of vehicles and we start building a make believe portfolio on paper first and then together if the client and the planner are comfortable that way, then we start the implementing. And I know that was I know that was real fast, but that's the overall methodology.
5: That sounds like what I need to hear. And we would do that in conjunction with, for instance, 401Ks that I've got uh, self-directed.
1: A good planner should encompass everything in your financial life. Your 401K, he should tell you whether you're overinsured or underinsured. He should look at your estate. He should review your wills. He should go ahead and look at your personal investments and your retirement investments and also your living expenses, your cash flow, and your income taxes.
5: Okay. Well, I, that, uh, that's sort of what I, I knew. And my question was way too long for for a radio talk show but i need i need nowhere to
2: call. So, congratulations uh, <laughs> lee <laughs> i suppose
5: it's a little frightening but it's fun <laughs> okay. well it's really
1: fun ha- taking a, a control of your financial world i have so many people that come to see me who are in their 70s and they say boy i wish i had done this 40 years ago it's excellent that you're looking at it while you're young and i and i commend you lee. you should be working with a financial planner whether it be me or someone else. Of
5: course, the biggest myth was that uh, the diamond salesman told me that the ring was an investment.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So did so. So did the guy who wants you to buy the 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 place at the beach and everything else. Everything's an investment. I
5: bought that one too.
1: Lee, <laughs> thank you for calling.
3: This is Deborah Lewis, certified financial planner at Lewis Financial Management. Our number at the office is 919-872-7000. Call me at 919-872-7000.
2: Well, Doug, from the financial planner's viewpoint, once we know the risk of a fund, how do we know what risks are suitable for a client?
1: That's a great question because the question of describing risks in mutual fund prospectuses is only half of the story. The other story is, what about the person? And each person has a different, what we call risk tolerance, Linda. And in the uh, financial planner's viewpoint, there should be an analysis of the risk tolerance. Now there are actually 9 levels of risk according to the way I practice financial planning. In my office, I identify 9 levels of risk, and we want to find out where the client is in that risk spectrum. In searching for your risk tolerance, you should find out what's the highest risk tolerance on the scale of 1 to 9 that you can handle because the greater the risk, the greater the potential reward.
2: Right. So you need to determine what is your level of risk.
1: Right. Where is the highest level of risk that you're comfortable at?
2: So what is the first level?
1: The first level of risk? Well, it's level one. A person who's at level one says, I don't like risk at all. I want to sleep well at night. Don't care about interest rates. Don't want to lose my money.
2: So it's very conservative.
1: That person is almost paranoid. Right. Okay. Afraid banks are going to collapse and so on. Keep their money under their mattress. All right. That's lowest level of risk. Level two is is a person who says, I don't like risk, but I'd like to get higher than money market interest.
2: Okay. What's the next level?
1: Level three would be a person who says, I'm willing to accept some risk to get a higher yield, but high safety is still important to me.
2: Okay. The fourth level.
1: Level four investor says, I'm a conservative investor. My priority is protection from loss, but I'm willing to take enough risks to get higher income.
2: Level five.
1: Level five on a spectrum one to nine is a person who says, I'm willing to take middle-of-the-road risk to achieve better results with medium safety. You still ready to go higher?
2: Yeah, let's go to level six.
1: Level six person says, I'm willing to take a little more risk than average, but I don't expect the level of loss to be very high. I'm looking for investments that will outperform inflation. Level seven. A person who wants to try a little higher, a level 7, would say, I can accept a more volatile investment. However, I don't want to lose my entire investment. Level 8? An 8 is a person who says, I'm willing to use high leverage to achieve greater profits, but I recognize that the possibility of loss is great.
2: And the ninth level?
1: Ninth level is a person who says, I'm a speculator. I can accept high leverage, quick action, the entire investment can be lost, but I want the profit potential to be very high.
2: Okay, so there we have it, the nine levels of risk. And we just
1: find out what's the highest level a person is comfortable with, and their comfort level identifies what type of funds they should be going into. Does that help your question about how to evaluate the, from the planner's viewpoint? What,
2: yes, because, you know, people know inside in their gut feeling how they feel about when they go to invest uh how how they're going to feel if something happens and are you going to be able to sleep at night or are you willing to take the middle of the road risks so that you can achieve better results with medium safety? Correct. And then, you know, then you have the conservative investor who feels like, well, my priority is protection from loss, but I'm willing to take enough risks to get a higher income. Right. And if we can be of more assistance to you, you can call me at the office during the week and the number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's USA seven thousand.
1: Don, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you? Yes, sir,
6: Doug. Uh, I've been in your office and I met you, and I appreciate what you do.
1: Oh, thank you very much.
6: Um, and you have a nice wife too.
1: <laughs> well, that's thank you. Uh, that's a given.
6: <laughs> uh, I'm getting some points here.
1: <laughs> okay,
6: I've got. A, I'm in. I'm a real estate broker, and I've got a couple questions. All right. I have a couple older people that have property with very little base in their real estate. Right. Maybe three, four hundred dollars an acre or something like that. And uh-huh. we're looking at a sale of maybe uh seventeen, eighteen thousand an acre. Mm-hmm. What can they do? They want to carry the paper and have an income. What can they do about these capital gains taxes and the taxes on the property as such? They're sixty in the early sixties, but they are retired.
1: Well let's see. Uh,
6: One set of them are.
1: If there's no debt on the property right now, we can solve that one.
6: There is no debt.
1: All right. Here's here's what they can do. They're in their early 60s, and the sale price of the property is how much?
6: Well, uh, they're about 62 years old, and the sales price of the property would be like $135,000.
1: Okay. So we have $135,000 asset. Vacant land. Vacant land and we have basically no uh, very little basis in it
6: yeah very little maybe 10,000 10,000
1: yeah. and so obviously their accountant has told them wait a minute if you sell that thing you're going to have a $125,000 long-term capital gain okay. so obviously uh, that's a bad situation for them to move on that, that that's that's what's holding them back here's what can be done first of all why is it they want to carry a note on the property
6: well, they want to help out the people who are buying it because they're young. For one thing, they want to spread out the income for taxes. They feel like they just pay what they gather in on a yearly basis. Okay. And, so,
1: well, and, let me ask you this. Can the people who are buying who want to buy it, can they get their own financing?
6: Well, I guess they could.
1: I mean, it can be done the other way, but quite frankly, it's better for uh, for the for the seller if he's got the whole lump and that's because of the power of compounding now here's what has to happen they need to set up a section 664 trust section 664 trust will ultimately pass what is placed in it to a charity it may not be 40 or 50 years well they're in their 60s it may be 30 some years from now but ultimately what goes into this trust will go to a charity therefore step 1 they transfer the deed into the name of this Section 664 trust. Step two, the trustee sells the property to the buyer and pays no capital gains tax at all. Right away, we've saved the entire capital gains taxes.
6: Is that a revocable?
1: No, trust? it's not a revocable living trust. A revocable living trust is the exact opposite. That's revocable. This is irrevocable. Uh, this will work out wonderfully. Because a revocable living trust is established for the benefit of the person who sets it up. But this one is established, at least in the views of the IRS, for the benefit of some charitable institution, university, or nonprofit.
2: And are, be- are both of them retired? Both of them,
6: both of them are officially retired. Yeah, they are.
1: All right. Now, once we, once we do that, the trustee then sells the property and the entire 135000 would come back to the trust. It can then be invested to produce as high an income or as low an income as they want. Do you know? Do they need the income now? Did you say the reason? Well,
6: no, they they both have retirement income, and they don't have any debt.
1: All right. Well, if they
6: living expenses.
1: All right. Then, if they don't need the income, it works even better for them because now that hundred thirty five thousand can sit inside that charitable trust. And it can be invested by the trustee in any investments, basically, they want. They could have it in uh, plain old uh, bread and butter, blue chip stock, growth and income mutual funds. They can draw all the income from that along the way. Not only that, they can be their own trustee, which is the only way that I would advise them to do it. That way they never give up control.
6: Mm -hmm. I do want to sit down with you and and, uh, go over this.
2: You can call me at the office during the week. And the number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000.
6: Well, thank you both, and and I will give you a holler and and get with you. Okay, very good.
2: Take care.
1: What's new in the area of investment planning?
2: Well, Doug, some folks that have called in at the office want to know, what's wrong with index funds?
1: The index funds are really getting a lot of publicity today, and I guess the bottom line comes down to the question, should investors strive for mediocrity? Now, proponents of index mutual funds think that's what you should do. Index funds generally, Lynn, will match the performance of a specific market index by buying all or maybe a representative portion of the securities of that index, like maybe the S&P 500. It's a passive approach. And it contrasts with the many more actively managed funds that try to sort out the winners from the losers according to specific investing style. So uh, that's basically what an index fund is. Isn't the idea to beat the market. So why invest in a fund that's designed to do no better than the market? Why should you strive for mediocrity? Well, proponents of index funds say that investors should consider adding them to their portfolio for several reasons. First, few actively managed funds outperform the market over the long term. Study after study does show the S&P 500 outperforming 80% of more of the actively managed stock funds. And, and that's that's a case in point.
2: You know, Doug, because index funds are essentially passive funds that don't spend a lot of time and manpower trying to pick winners, their management fees are among the lowest of all mutual funds, right? Low fees mean that you get to keep more of your income and your profits as well, correct?
1: Yeah, I've heard that argument. And also people say because funds don't buy and sell a lot of securities, they don't spend much money in brokerage fees and low portfolio turnover, which means the manager isn't buying and selling stocks, usually less than 10% a year, also means there's less realized capital gains and losses compared with a fund that turns over, you know, maybe 80% to 100% of its portfolio in a year. And this means lower tax cost for the investor. And uh, also, I've heard it said that index fund investors know that they will at least track the market and they won't have to worry whether the fund is doing better or worse than the market. I don't know, Lynn. I guess while index funds do have their virtues, investors, in my opinion, really shouldn't rely solely on them. For one thing, actively managed funds, such as small company funds or sector funds, will outperform index funds during a given time. And there are funds that consistently can show that they have beat the market. I prefer to think of putting your money in the hands of a manager who's going to be managing the money, buying and selling, buying and selling. And so I, like many other certified financial planners, I advise you to sort of stay away from the index funds. That's bottom line of my opinion.
2: Okay, if you have uh, some information you'd like us to send to you, uh, you can call at the office in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. One more time. That's USA 7000. I think it might be helpful for us to go over a retirement income needs checklist.
1: Let's do that. First, remember, analyze your present situation, your income, your expenses, your assets, and your liabilities.
2: Secondly, it's good to determine which of your expenses are likely to decrease after you you retire and which are likely to increase.
1: Third, set your financial monthly and annual retirement goals.
2: Fourthly, find out how much you can expect to receive from Social Security, Veterans Benefits, as well as pension plans.
1: That's right, Linda. Fifth, estimate how much you should receive from the interest earned on savings, investments, and from real estate rentals.
2: Sixth, review your insurance policies to see whether they meet your present as well as your future needs.
1: Seven, know the amount that you must begin setting aside monthly and yearly to close the gap between your retirement income goals and your potential retirement income.
2: Eighth, try to pay off significantly large bills now to avoid facing them when you retire.
1: And ninth, make sure that you've got sufficient health insurance coverage in place these are the nine areas on the retirement income needs checklist, Lynn.
2: Doug, along with these issues, I've gotten a number of callers. In fact, consistently, people that are either having early retirement issues or early out. As people are getting older, they're being asked to leave or are retiring because uh, it's time time to do it, mm-hmm. or it's feasible. And sometimes they have a number of options that they can decide on, and. What I was wondering, if you could give some advice for some of the people that are are trying to decide whether or not to take a lump sum option or not.
1: The first thing is to decide whether we're talking about the qualified or the non-qualified portion. The qualified portion is the 401k plan, the 403b plan, the retirement lump, okay? The money that's been pre-taxed, that's qualified money, and there are options that you have there. Everybody has options there. The second is with regard to non-qualified. Some companies offer you a lump of money or a check for the rest of your life. Some of them go ahead and offer you a lump of your salary and so forth. So we need to go ahead and talk about the differences between these two. Let's focus on the qualified portion. First of all, the qualified money is going to be offered to you in one of two ways, first of all, a lump that you can take or in some cases, a monthly check. That's a typical pension option that you might have. I'm remembering one client and he worked for a major uh, oil company and he was offered a $300,000 lump from his pension versus 1700 a month. This was qualified money. If he chose the lump, He then was offered choices, and this is IRS ruling. Either you take it and pay tax on it under your normal income. So let's say a guy got a $300,000 lump from his qualified portion, and he has to pay taxes, he might lose $150,000 in income tax. Well, about $100,000 in income taxes by the time he pays taxes, federal and state.
3: Call me, Deborah Lewis, certified financial planner at Lewis Financial Management. Call me at 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000.
1: Choice number two from the IRS: instead of taking that lump and paying taxes of about a third, he could take the lump, but not take possession of it. In other words, if you do not have what's called constructive receipt of the lump, you can move it from the present place. Let's say it's your 401k plan or your, some companies call it a TDSP, the tax deferred savings plan or whatever. You can direct it to an IRA, an IRA rollover, we call this. And then you pay no taxes on it. So in our little $300,000 guy's example, he could roll over the whole $300,000 to an IRA rollover account and have no taxes taken out. Now, why would he do that? Well, number one, of course, no taxes are taken out. But has he achieved anything? Yes, he's achieved a tremendous amount because once it's over there, he now controls it.
2: So that he can invest it to produce income, right?
1: Well, it's already invested where it was at, but the difference is he now controls the investments. He works with his own certified financial planner, develops an asset allocation model, selects the different investments that are suitable for him, In the IRA, then from those investments, he starts taking the income out of that IRA. And what he's done is he's maintained total control. At his death, he now goes ahead and can leave the entire amount to his heirs and he's lost nothing. Whereas doing it the other way, there's a big hunk taken out. If he took the first way of taking the monthly check, there's nothing left. This way, the entire amount goes to his children.
2: I think it's important when people are considering retirement or being offered early retirement, that they go ahead and get those options in writing. That's right. So that they can prepare for whichever uh, direction they decide to take.
1: That's right. But I think
2: that that, that that rollover is a wonderful vehicle for them. First of all, to avoid any immediate taxes. And then also they're only being taxed on the income that they take out. Right.
1: Right. Right. Then of course, if a person is not offered that lump sum at all, They're only offered a monthly check from their employer. In cases like that, they're offered choices of what the size of that check is, whether they want the largest check or whether they want the 50% survivor option check, which is a smaller one, or the 100% survivor option check, which is an even smaller one. And some companies have about six different choices. So you really need to walk through your numbers in that case and find out which works best for you. Uh, We've seen all of them. And of course, those are the things that we try and help people with as they come to us with these questions but you do need like you say to go through all of the proformas and all the choices before you make any decision not afterwards.
2: Very good. The number at the office if you'd like to call is 872-7000, 872-7000. and I believe we have another caller. Hi Frank how can I help you?
7: Um, my question is this I've been doing a lot of uh, evaluating uh, different types of investment opportunities <clears throat> And I was talking to someone, and they said that um, if you pay off your mortgage, you know, on uh, your your properties, like I have two different properties, one of them is a rental property, one of them is my own home, personal property, um, and both of them have mortgages on them. Now, if I go ahead and pay off my mortgages and use that as an investment, wouldn't I save like hundreds of thousands of dollars over the period of, say, ten or fifteen years?
1: This is a very interesting computation because you have three things there. It's very much like A seesaw. Whatever you do is going to have an impact on something else. For example, yes, if you pay off your mortgages, assuming you have the cash to do so, then you totally will save all the rest of that mortgage interest, and it can be hundreds of thousands of dollars depending on your numbers. Right. On the other hand, you also increase your taxes for all those years. So you've got a negative to factor in there by reducing outlay. In other words, all the savings that you made, you know, that's a plus. And then all the taxes you lose by doing this are a minus. So you've got those two components to the equation. First, you have to figure how much are the cash savings in the mortgage payments. Then you have to subtract from that the tax savings, which you lost by having no more tax deduction on the interest payment. Then number three, you've got to go ahead and take the cost of the money that would have been invested in an alternative investment that you use to pay off that mortgage,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you've got to subtract that because that's lost also. Right. And you have to weigh these three things against each other to compare which way it turns out better for you. The variables in this situation are the alternative investments yield or income mm-hmm. and the interest rate on the mortgage, if it's variable, and the tax rate. Uh, the, you do need a software to do that. I do that all the time for clients to help decide which way it's best for them. Mm-hmm. But uh, you, you've, got, you've, got to, you've got to keep the three components moving simultaneously to make the decision.
7: So sometimes it would be beneficial and sometimes it wouldn't.
1: I would say in most cases of people I have run, it is not beneficial to pay off your mortgages investment-wise. I see. Now, there are other reasons you might do so. Uh-huh. Comfort level... Uh, worry about your job being lost and so on. Oh, 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 I see. But comparing it to an investment, it's rare that uh, that the numbers work out to that benefit because you do get that income tax break.
7: Yeah, that's true. But then again, you don't have a house payment once you, you know, once you're finished. I mean, that's gone.
1: That's true. So is the money that you use to pay it off yeah. and the income from that money. <laughs> it's a push-pull situation. <laughs> Frank, if you call me at my office, I can go ahead and work through some numbers for you a little better. Okay. Okay. okay well, got another gonna... question for me?
7: Um, no, that was it. I uh, just been doing a lot of thinking about that. I got a lot of extra money now, and uh, I was going to go ahead and pay my, my my mortgages off.
1: I would generally run the numbers first before you do that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, you want to be careful. My number at the office is eight seven two seven thousand. 8727000, and I can plug them into a software and run that for you if you like. All right, well, thanks a lot. You're sure welcome. Bye bye. Bye bye now.
2: Well, Doug, at different points in a person's life, one will be concerned with different financial matters. And while it is true that different individuals will face these phases either earlier or later than other individuals, the cycle of issues proceeds in a fairly predictable pattern over a person's lifetime. Wouldn't you agree?
1: That's right, Lynn. You know, people who, for example, are in their 20s and 30s, for them, they need to establish solid financial habits since the money habits that they develop now will set the financial tone for the rest of their life. And now's a good time for them to set up a record keeping system and monitor your cash flow and develop a workable budget.
2: And while it is important to establish good credit, it is even more important to keep your debt under control. Is that correct?
1: Right. And, of course, to set up a contingency fund, which we call an emergency fund, equal to anywhere from two to six months of living expenses.
2: And it's important to start a regular savings program aiming to save at least 10% of your gross income. Right, Doug?
1: I think that's the most important thing of all, Linda. And, of course, you want to be investing for the long term when you're in your 20s and 30s.
2: And most individuals are anxious at this time to buy their first home. And it's an important decision But you need to make sure that you can make that mortgage payment without straining your budget. Is that correct?
1: And of course, in 20s and 30s, start saving for your children's college education.
2: And make sure to prepare a will naming a guardian for your children. Right, Doug? Now, when you get to your 40s and your 50s, there are some other things to consider. Your children are probably now in college and you'll have to help them finance their college education. So if you didn't accumulate sufficient savings over their childhood, then you may need to take on some debt in order to help them. Is that correct?
1: Right. And at the same time, for folks in their 40s and 50s, you may find that your parents also need your help with financial matters.
2: And it's imperative in your 40s and 50s that you seriously start saving for your own retirement. And now's a good time to evaluate your investments. Right, Doug?
1: Lynn, you're absolutely right. And, of course, take time to plan your estate.
2: And when you get into your 60s and beyond, before you retire, review your finances carefully. You may want to consider a part-time employment, both to supplement your income and to occupy some of your time. Is that correct?
1: Lynn, you're absolutely right. For folks in their 60s and older, they want to review their estate plan. They want to consider the use of a living will. They want to look at a health care proxy, durable power of attorney, and possibly a revocable living trust.
2: And in your 60s and older, reevaluate your gift-giving plans for your family members, as well as for your favorite charities. Right, Doug?
1: Right. And of course, you want to provide your family with the details of your finances. And I would say, Linda, for most important of all, for folks in their 20s and 30s, for folks in their 40s and 50s, and for folks in their 60s and beyond, they should work with a certified financial planner who can see The whole picture.
2: If you'd like any further information, call me at the office in Raleigh. That number is 919 872 That's 919-USA-7000. Well, Doug, there was an outstanding article about estate planning. And, of course, this one, uh, which we found in the journal, uh, a person recently went through a divorce. So if... After a divorce or split up, uh, you need to split up your estate plan as well.
3: And yeah. You, and you really need to have a plan to go through it. Yeah, well, it's... Uh, it's um, it's the
2: flip side of Lee's
3: call. Yeah. <laughs> like joy, 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 we're getting married. Right, right. And then, oops, <laughs> it didn't work yeah. out.
1: The only thing I can guarantee every person who goes through a divorce is that one day you will die. Yeah. And knowing that you're going to die... After a divorce, you have to not only split up your assets, you've got to split up your estate plans too. And that is uh, that's very serious because if you've just gotten divorced, and I think we do have a couple clients right now in that situation, at least at least one I can think of, if we uh, if you have just gotten divorced, then you need to make sure that you have updated the financial arrangements that are going to kick in at your death
3: and that's the big thing updating the financial documents. Yeah,
1: because if not, it could result in certain assets and benefits unintentionally going to your former spouse. Or or
3: even his or her family.
1: That's right. That's right. So you have to really realize that uh, divorce isn't just splitting up what we own now. It's what about at death? The lesson, of course, is to stay on top of your estate plans and... The most simple thing, of course, is you need to draft a new will. Now, here in our office, of course, we do all of the investment planning for the clients and all of the investment portfolios, and that, of course, is the starting point. But we also design the estate plans. And when there's a divorce, we're helping out design the new will. Uh, we don't write the will because we're not attorneys, but we often are uh, helping the attorney gather all the information about the assets
2: and that's because you want to make sure that the appropriate people have the copies of your documents and where to find them. And, and the key is to make sure that your estate planning documents, not only your will, but also your power of attorney, your health care power, uh, power uh, proxies, uh, clearly reflect what your intentions are.
1: That's right, Linda. And that is uh, so often, uh, sadly enough, Not what happens as life goes on. Let's take the beneficiaries as an example. Beneficiary designations. A lot of people don't know this. You know, they get really tricky. Let's say I'll give you an example. Let's take a hypothetical, okay? All right. First of all, let's say that my will says that I leave 50% to my wife and 25% of everything else I own to each of my two children.
3: Okay. Sounds simple.
1: All right. Very simple. And I've got an insurance policy and the beneficiary of this insurance policy uh is uh my brother okay all right at death does the will or the insurance policy which one who what happens there with the beneficiary of the insurance policy the
3: which one dictates where the insurance proceeds would go? Right. The insurance policy.
1: Even though the will said my whole is Yes, and, sir. And, and see, we have to realize that. So, beneficiary designations need to be reviewed
3: and changed. This is Deborah Lewis of Lewis Financial Management. Call us at 919-872-7000 to set up an appointment to speak about your situation. 919-872-7000.
1: Many people, you know, have a lot of different bank accounts, brokerage accounts, not only, also insurance policies, even retirement accounts have beneficiaries. And annuities, these all name either a beneficiary or maybe it's a TOD account at the bank. Transfer on death. Transfer on death. These are individuals to whom the ownership will transfer at death. And the proceeds of these accounts and policies, they actually pass directly to the named individual regardless of what the will says. And by the time the family members find out what happens, it could the money could already have been distributed and gone.
3: And I would say, Doug Linda, that this is a probably a point of clarification that needs to be always um, you know, reiterated. You need to know that what your will says is not where all your assets or how all your assets will be passed. If you have named a beneficiary of an IRA, It will pass by beneficiary designation, not by your will. If you have insurance, just like Doug was saying, it's going to pass by the beneficiary designation, not by what's written in the will.
1: Even if you have that beneficiary listed as your wife and you divorced her 30 years ago <laughs> right. and it's grown to be a half million dollars and guess who gets it the yeah. present wife or the ex-wife yeah, yeah. and guess who's going to be really angry because no <laughs> both of
3: those kids
1: <laughs> that's right yeah that's right so so this is important and it of course really we is. do it all the time in our yes. office we check beneficiaries we change them and so forth but now beneficiaries have to be changed in writing
3: and that's the important part
1: yes By filing new forms and sending them to the financial institution or the account or the policy and so on.
3: And we recently found out in um, an unusual situation, but in a situation, that you really want to make sure that the recipient, meaning whether it's the IRA custodian or the insurance company, that they let you know that they have received it and agreed to the change in the beneficiary designation form.
1: Very good. That's exactly
3: right. This is Deborah Lewis of Lewis Financial Management. Call us at 919-872-7000 to set up an appointment to speak about your situation. 919-872-7000. Now, Doug, tell us about the exception or the unusual situation. Well,
1: the unusual situation is with regard to retirement plans. Now, typically, the ex-spouse should get a court order. This meaning the this the spouse who's going through a divorce. Okay. Okay. Should get a court order called a quadro or a qualified domestic relations order that gives him or her the right to a portion of the other spouse's four oh one K. But it's very tricky here, and I remember a case a client of mine years ago, and after the divorce, and yes there was a quadro, the attorney for the In this case, it was a woman that came to me. She came to me for financial planning after she'd been divorced. Okay. And she had a quadro, but she hadn't, unfortunately, dealt with the financial planner beforehand. And what happened was that it looked like she was going to get half of the money, but it was going to be rolled and locked into her retirement account, so she... She couldn't get to it without a huge tax bite, and she needed it to live on. Wow. The end of the story is this, that you should have, if you're going through a divorce, you should use a certified financial planner before the divorce settlement is agreed on, and, you know, and especially with regard to the quadro, because you want to have the agreement, but whichever spouse is going to be receiving the, uh, the half, if it's retirement, you need to at least make sure that it's going to be after tax, not before tax.
3: And wouldn't the two of you really agree that once a couple realizes the benefit of a financial planner being involved, it will tend to simmer things down and bring it down a notch and not be so confrontational because now you have a third party Mm -hmm. saying, well, here's the financial statement, folks. Here's the value of the home. It needs to either be bought and split in two, or the retirement plan needs to be quadroed or not. I mean, it just
2: brings things down to the financial, here's what we own, here's what we own. You know, in some cases, yes, it can be really a very difficult, you know, just because of the work that we've done over the years. Uh, Families that are going through a divorce, it can really be emotional. It can be sad. Sometimes it can be very volatile. Mm -hmm. But By and large, they're amicable. And, um, you know, several of our our, uh, clients that have gone through uh, divorces, and then sometimes you have uh, one of the spouses remarrying, and then they come back and, you know, they continue. But the most important thing, and I I think the thing that I liked about this is that it is a reminder to every one of our listeners out there. At every stage, I mean, One day we're all going to be with the Lord. We don't know when our time is. But for the most part, this is an issue that is difficult to discuss. Because no one wants to talk about dying, because especially like the guy, the last caller, Lee you getting married. You know, you, you're thinking about your whole rest of your life together. And Doug, I'm just so glad that I've just loved you forever. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I haven't stopped loving you. So there. But, but anyway,
3: there's my mom and dad. <laughs> but yeah, you bring a good point up, which is as your life changes, as the phases change, as the needs change, don't let the time pass by. So, um, you know, if it's every two years, every five years, definitely Definitely get a copy, make sure the accounts uh, have the proper designation for the beneficiaries and that that you, you know where they are and the right people know how to find those forms. Everyone have a great week.